0: This is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Reeducation. My guest today is Noah Rothman, author of The Rise of the New Puritans, a new book that looks at how progressive scolds have waged a war on fun. A paradox of the American experience is that in our country, there are long traditions of both libertine excess and puritanical control. Americans invented both Spring Break and Girls Gone Wild, as well as 12-step programs and the Comstock laws. In other words, we are both a fun and anti-fun society. That is the intellectual conceit of my guest Noah Rothman's new book, on the progressive scolds that now seem to be on the march in nearly every facet of our lives. There are the climate activists which would like us to stop eating meat and perhaps replace our T-bones with sautéed crickets. There are the online anti-comedy activists that pressure prestige outlets like Saturday Night Live to fire dangerous alt-right comics. And of course, there are the anti-racism experts and consultants who implore us all to do the work.
1: And as they do the work of getting the word out, the goal is for MCLA to do the
0: work of anti-racism.
1: The name of the campaign is Do the Work of Anti-Racism. But I think what we're hoping to do is kind of flood the quad, really have lots of signage so that you're a little bit overwhelmed by it.
0: That was a brief video from 2020 about a new campaign at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. So what is the work, you may ask? Well, it involves a process of self-interrogation, an acknowledgement that if you're white, you are inescapably racist. And if you learn this insight, you have a moral obligation to spur your friends and family to confront their own racism as well. Here's a Washington Post video from 2020 making the same point. There's a
1: moral imperative around talking about racism, People are dying because white people aren't having conversations about racism. As Americans think more critically about what it means to be anti-racist, a lot of people are realizing that journey starts at home by having conversations with your family. And some have started doing that, but it's not exactly an easy conversation to have.
0: Now, the linguist John McWhorter has made the argument that anti-racism today is a kind of religion. Its adherents seek to expunge an original sin. The parishioners go forth and spread a gospel and those that question or deviate from the dogma will be shunned or excommunicated. Rothman has a similar analysis, though he thinks it's a step too far to say the new anti-racist is a religion because it lacks the concept of a deity. It is, though, puritanical, so named for those early colonial settlers of New England that sought to perfect society by squeezing any ounce of joy, laughter, and heresy from the people who comprise it. On the surface, the goal of anti-racism is, of course, laudable and that's true for all of these movements racism like sexism or any kind of bigotry is evil the trouble comes in the language most people believe that racism is a character flaw it means that you judge people negatively based on their race the anti-racism crowd though believes that racism permeates the atmosphere it influences our subconscious. It rigs our bureaucracies and legal regimes and other institutions that to purport to be fair and neutral, and that the work required to cleanse our society of racism is systemic, meaning we need to replace the old institutions which perpetuate the injustice. At its root, this is a very puritanical concern for the soul and mind of others. It's not enough to simply evolve our norms and change our laws so that discrimination in the workplace, schools, or government is outlawed. One must change people's souls. And that, in the end, is a mission impossible. At the end of Noah's fine book, he sounds an optimistic note. He invokes the era of Anthony Comstock and the anti-obscenity laws that sought to ban licentious photographs and verse and other literature in the late 19th century in New England. At its height, the movement sought to ban perhaps the greatest work of our greatest poet, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Eventually, publishers sought to have their books banned in Boston because over time, it became a selling point in the rest of the country. Buy this book because it's banned in Boston, in much the same way the first Air Jordans were sold as the shoe the NBA doesn't want you to wear. Comstock today would be horrified by America in 2022 his moral crusade, let's just say, it has failed. Gays and lesbians now marry in churches and synagogues. Public libraries feature drag queen story hour for children. Marijuana is legal in most states, and pornography is only a click and an internet connection away. But the style of Comstock's politics remains. Today, a patronizing elite also worries for our souls, seeks to restrain our choices for the good of the community, and shuns and punishes, an ever-expanding list of heretics. It's easy to see why a certain kind of person would be attracted to this. It gives one a sense of purpose and moral confidence. In a calmer time, you're just a busybody. In the era of Black Lives Matter, you're an ally. You've done the work. As the reckonings of 2020, though curdled into moral panic, the seeds were planted for the demise of the new Puritans. It turns out that most people do not want to do the work. They would even occasionally like to have some fun, maybe laugh a little, stop feeling so terrible about themselves. So let's take a breath and see what happens. Because I think in a few years, we will not be remembering the spate of cancellations, corporate wokeness, diversity and equity trainings, and so forth as the dawn of a new era. I suspect the new Puritans will go the way of the old ones. Eventually, we will look back at 2020 and cringe How was it possible for allegedly serious people to campaign to cancel Paw Patrol? Why didn't more people just laugh in their face? What happened to us? And then over time, eventually, a new group of Puritans will probably emerge to scold us once again. That's America. We are a very, very big country with all kinds of different people. We like to party. And we also like to yell at people who like to party. Well, listeners of The Re-Education, we are really, really lucky right now to have Noah Rothman, who is an editor at Commentary Magazine, where I am a contributor, and the author of the great new book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives, War on Fun. Noah, thanks so much for coming on The Reeducation. It's a pleasure, Eli. Thank you for having me. It's great to, great to have you here. So I wanted to start, why don't you sort of explain the thesis of the book and who are the new Puritans? Yeah, so it starts with with a mystery for all
1: of our adult lives, Mm -hmm. a tendency that uh, looked upon cultural fair, innocent cultural fair, as corrupting, corrupting a view, degrading society. Mm -hmm. Uh, Priggish, prudish impulse was found on the right. The left, by contrast, emphasized self-actualization, self-gratification, hedonism, even at the risk of self-destruction, self-fulfillment. That changed almost overnight, over the course of a couple of years, but enough a short enough time that it's been profoundly disorienting. Now we're treated to crusades with a moral dimension on the left. Entertainment companies, the commanding heights of American culture, introducing themes, ostentatiously introducing themes into entertainment products that render them more socially valuable than just mere entertainment. Comedians dwelling on the pain that someone endured somewhere so that you could enjoy something as trite and frivolous as a punchline. Sports coverage that introduces long digressions about the lamentable state of of racial affairs in America. And when fans object, as they often do, they're explicitly admonished for putting their desire to have an escape, for escapism, over their duty as responsible citizens to dwell on the horrors that beset all of us. Why? When did this happen and why did it happen? So this book asks this question and answers it by teasing out the threads that connect progressivism today to its 19th century iteration, and from there to the Puritan experiment of the 1600s and 1700s. As liberals identify less with liberalism, classical or otherwise, they are adopting progressivism's habits of mind. Among them, utopianism, messianic virtue, Mm -hmm. a frustration with banal pastimes, because they also have adopted a fear and hatred of idleness, that which is idle, which does not contribute actively to the progressive project. The great work of our time isn't just worthless, it's actively frustrating our need to create and work towards a better society. It's accompanied by great displays of discomfort and frustration and labor, so that you can observe the sweat on their brow, the sort of sense of discipline, and Do it is not a private... It's not a do the work and it's not a private exercise. You're gonna be drafted into this. It is total insofar as its prescriptions for society are total. So it has a totalitarian impulse to it. Progressives might not recognize the Puritanism in their in their legacy and their ideological habits, but this book aims to, to fix that.
0: So I want to push. Not really push back, but I want to try to get you to sort of hone in on an idea here, which is that if you were to go back in time and talk to say Cotton Mather or Comstock in the 19th century, which you which you talk a lot about, and you kind of get into the scholarship of these of these past moments where there's sort of great moral rectitude being imposed on everybody else, and you would have sort of introduced them to kind of where we are in 2022 America, they would be horrified by the prevalence and availability of pornography they would be horrified by the legalization of marijuana and the increasingly progressive approach say to drug addiction they would be horrified by drag queen story hour they would be horrified by the not just acceptance of gay marriage which I think we would both agree is a good thing but almost like the idea that if you somehow are feeling in any way uncomfortable by transgenderism or 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 Gay lifestyle or anything like that—that that there's something morally impure with you, that you you are a, a bigot or somebody who is engaged in hateful conduct. Right. So, how do you kind of square the circle? Which is to say that the initial moral crusades of maybe the 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 ancestors or the the, the progenitors of the the earlier versions of American Puritanism would feel that they have lost an enormous amount of ground. And among the people who they've lost the crown to are the new Puritans. Right. So trying to fold all those issues into yeah.
1: categories that the puritanically inclined, both of the 16th century and 17th century and the 1900s would recognize. I think we'd have to talk about them in terms of sex, sexual politics and yeah. politics around substances, which are primarily alcohol, as we understand it back in, you know, they were, they were talking about opiates. But nevertheless, so sex and booze, that's in the chapter on temperance. And one of the reasons this book is organized by virtues, unimpeachable virtues, pious, piety, prudence, austerity, temperance, the fear of God and order, is that these are old value systems that have a lot to say for themselves. And particularly when it comes to temperance, we know it is tried and true that when you have men and women in a social situation that is also bathed in alcohol, bad things can happen. Societies can disaggregate. You can have social disorder and conduct that threatens the organization of that society. This is a rediscovery of a very old ethos that was only briefly put to one side during the sexual revolution, which I maintain was something of a fad on the left because the moral
0: order that they're seeking to reestablish now has much longer life. And And you correctly bring up that there were elements of the new left, such as Andrew Dworkin and some of the second-wave feminists. Who would be very much comfortable with the kind of tra- grand Puritanical p- tradition that you're writing about? It's not. It's not. It's. It's uh, that. You, I think it was a very clever way that you wrote about the '60s. It's just only on the surface did it seem like kind of free love and everything like that. That there were elements within it on the intellectual side as well with Marcuse that really sought to constrain behavior, even though we associate it with a feel. If it feels, if it feels good,
1: do it. Sure. And they didn't have an audience in their time, but they certainly have one today. So let's take. Sex, for example, what do we we understand that the the progressive left to be especially permissive when it comes to sexual culture? The many proliferating sexual orientations don't emphasize self gratification, however, they emphasize the political program associated with them homosexuality, bisexuality, pansexuality, autosexuality, demisexuality, and so on. They all have a political utility to them, which is emphasized well beyond the sense of self-satisfaction that you get from a private practice. It's not a private practice. This is a very public demonstration of a source of identity. Polyamory being quietly revolutionary and what have you. The only, uh, you know, sexual orientation that doesn't get this kind of apple polishing treatment is heterosexuality. And there's actually a term for that, which is on this, this particular ideological inclination, heteropessimism, which describes those who are beset with guilt over their ineluctable attraction to the opposite sex. They need to work through this, this torment on their own. But so on top of this, we have this very political idea of sexual orientation and layer on top of that, an increasingly labyrinthine set of heterosexual and homosexual courtship rituals that are extend well beyond the statute when it comes to attempting to discourage or punish that which can be considered assault or harassment crimes that should be prosecuted to their fullest extent. This legal concept is being expanded out now and ballooned in ways that that people, under, people who support it understand that will strike this cold spike of fear, to use Ezra Klein's terms, in the heart of young amorous individuals who might want to find a, a partner. And he wrote that favorably because the statutes can't possibly capture the nebulous nature of what constitutes consent. So now we have even retroactive violations, not something that a cue is overlooked or a, a physical display is misread, can result in real social and legal consequences for individuals who happen to stumble across this landmine. And it's always a landmine because you don't actually know it's there and they tend to move and shift. So that makes for a very bad legal environment. The courts have looked unfavorably upon this effort on the part of states and, and colleges, for example. But there are consequences for this that are real. And the result is people are having less sex. So the the picture that you get is a, a, a superficially permissive movement that is nevertheless discouraging casual encounters along these lines, emphasizing the political nature of your sexual identity and its political utility and rendering this more of an academic concept than the pursuit of self-fulfillment. But don't you uh, think
0: that maybe people are having less sex because of, I mean, it's we've never had a situation where this much pornography was available so instantly to so many people. It used to be like, before the internet, you had to do you had to, you had to go through some trouble to yeah, but find before the pornography. Internet, but before the internet is before 1994.
1: We have had a quarter century to study this, and it's only now. Yeah, I oh, I see. Okay, that's interesting. That this is becoming so, so. I mean, that is a there's a an argument to be made there.
0: It's not one that I think is sufficiently supported. It might. Yeah, be. I'm, um, I'm, I I'm not. I'm not by the way arguing it out. of- I'm trying to just sort of hone in on some of these concepts because it does seem to me like on certain issues, we are just never gonna go back to the kinds of kind of more more morally pure public square that the Christian right and evangelicals would fought for in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Well, the hostility- That's was over. Per, the hostility that's was, over. Uh, yeah. I know that there's feminists Perhaps. who or hostile to pornography. It's not right. just pornography, I'm just saying that it just seems like we're just never gonna go back. We're now at the point where you are shamed if you are not tolerant of drag queens and transgender people, as opposed to what you know. If you look fifty years ago, you know the the the, the social conservatives wanted to shame gay people. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm just saying yeah. that the culture has shifted. Well, i yeah. I mean, there's there's something that the left and that it dovetails with the left wing argument,
1: which is yeah. well, the the right is is just as culturally revanchist as ever. And I would say, no, they're not as culturally revanchist. No, no, no. And they, you argue but but they are that,
0: Trump, that Trump's nomination in 2016
1: kind of put an end to all that, which I think so all the conventional culture wars they were inclined to wage, yep. gay marriage, divorce, and to a lesser right. degree, abortion, in part because abortion had declined to such low rates before Dobbs. Although we've seen this burst of moral enthusiasm that reminds everybody that the right is cultural revanchists too. And if I were writing a book about the old Puritans, if I was writing yeah. about half, how this puritanical impulse to police culture and and, and fight lost wars in the culture ba- culture battle was to be found on the right, you would have a point. It is still to be found on the right. The newer, more interesting story is that it is now once again found on the left. And totally. while you're shamed for right-wing predilections, as you say, like hostility towards the imposition of uh, right. really you know flamboyant transgender shows or uh, drag shows on children, which is are still a right-wing predilection. You're shamed for any nat- any number of sexual infractions against the sexual prescriptions on the left. And does, which dovetails actually with their campaign against booze. She can go into in a certain degree. It's a more, you know, th- we have to enforce syntaxes against lower classes and migrants, which dovetails rather directly with a prohibitionist mindset, the mainline Protestant crusade of the 20th century. And these old prohibitionist argument, they render women helpless. They make men into brutes and menaces and bad providers. The temperance movements arguments have found their way back into the mouths of the most progressive among us. To a degree that we have now these pro- prescriptions against casual sex and prescriptions against excessive consumption of alcohol, which would render the person that you're looking at.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah we're going a marijuana
1: renaissance in our culture. Well, yeah, I mean, there's certain, yes, the uh, substance abuses have sort of migrated over into the mainstream <laughs> in a way that we didn't have a parallel for yeah. in the 20, 19th century, 20th century. But yeah, I mean, there's the the extent to which drug culture, I think, doesn't feature into this book is because this book does not take the law into account this book does right is, is blind and deaf to the law to government to education to the workplace unless your workplace is such where you're creating cultural products this is about institutions and areas of society that should exist outside politics that once were apolitical and can be no longer that the people who get up the people i talk with for this book many of them left liberals who wouldn't vote for a Democrat or Republican rather with a gun to their head, are resent the conditions that are sapping them of enthusiasm for their life's work because they get up in the morning and they are no longer able to create the cultural product that they once did, that they dedicated their lives for, that they found fun. They mm-hmm. must practice politics now in ways that they didn't sign up for. And that's creating a backlash.
0: That's a that's a that's a very good point. I, I want to ask really quickly, who is Seth Simons? and talk a little bit about the rise of the comedy critic who doesn't understand comedy. Well, it's, it's nothing. I don't know if he doesn't understand it, but certainly doesn't I, he, like I it. I don't think he understands it. I think his whole job is to take somebody's jokes, rip it out of any context, and then explain why it's wrong thing. that's right. It seems like that's his 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 thing.
1: So he wrote an essay for The New Republic a couple of years back in which the central thesis was, that you could find the origins of the alt-right, sort of very racially hostile and authoritarian version of the right. It has its its roots in a form of, of comedy that was very popular in the early 2000s, colloquially called cringe comedy, leveraged horrible things for humor value, sexism, racism, homophobia, violence, assault, the sort of stuff that you would say that clinical description of dark humor. Anybody who likes that kind of humor, much less tells a joke along those lines, must be a pretty bad person. And yet, this is the en- the essence of dark humor: to laugh your way up the gallows steps, to find humor in the in the in the depths of human frailty and tragedy and suffering. It makes life endurable. So, from there, having found some antisocial behaviors on the right, he makes this leap—a logical leap, in my view. From there and draws a straight line to the January 6th riots. That's, we got January 6th, this Black Swan event out of an otherwise banal aspect of the human condition, dark humor. Maybe so because this, of Tim Dillon's podcast. Right. So, <laughs> right. So, but I mean, there's an element of condescension here that I think is is apparent throughout the course of this book is that he doesn't really believe that the Lori Kilmartin is up on stage, who's t- talking about the horrible things, is going to go out and, and act them out, is going to go, you know, attack you know, left-wing protesters or something like that. But but you might, we can't trust you. We right. don't know what you're thinking. <laughs> right. So there's, and that's sort of a feature of one element of this attack on comedy. The other is to emphasize a joke telling that rejects punchlines. And I, it's very specifically, I cite, there's many, but I cite the anti-comic Hannah Gadsby, who is funny, who can be funny when she wants to be. Sometimes she's very explicitly not funny. And that's what her fans love the most. They do her a grave disservice because they emphasize the pain that she deliberately highlights. And that's what enlivens them. She'll tell a joke, but sometimes she'll circle back to that punchline five minutes later and and ask you to interrogate your sense of humor. Why did you think my pain was funny? Sometimes she'll build the same tension that would ordinarily lead to the release of a punchline and refuse you that release. Just let you marinate in her pain. And this is... A profound thrill to a sort of uh, a a mindset prominent on the puritanically inclined progressive left that emphasizes the pain that dwells in the torment that somebody had to endure and that you as a serious Mm. person must marinate in because you are attuned to all the horrors that beset us at all times and in every facet of society this is painful by design and that's what her most ardent fans love the most so throughout this chapter you identify, a te- I've identified a tendency, I think, on the puritanically inclined left that rejects and resents satire and is seeking to drive this sort of thing underground. And when they have succeeded in that, they'll congratulate themselves on what a great job they've done sanitizing the culture. But the very thing that they find most terrifying will be metastasizing below the surface, well outside their ability to police it because they're creating an atomized culture, not a common culture, but an atomized culture in which artists can thrive and survive very small narrow but committed audiences that will result in a in a in a, as i said an atomized culture that we don't not all of us share and that to me is kind of a, a an unnerving prospect
0: because it's but that's notable. not that's not entirely on them that is also because the means of the, the the medium for delivering entertainment has gotten so transformed and it's so instant and it's so relatively cheap to just put something out there that there's an a, a, there's just so much content that people can and people can pick and choose it that it, it's inevitably we're not going to have a casey case in top 40 or you know four networks telling us you know that everybody's watching cheers or something like that we're, we're now atomized just because we have far more choices and people can watch what they want and that's how it goes right Yeah, it's something, I think it's a little, it's not just the proliferation of platforms.
1: It is the fact that the primary platforms have been captured by this particular movement and are intimidated by this particular movement. It's a fantastic act of piracy on the part of the puritanically inclined progressive who spent the teens educating themselves in the pseudo-scientific, semi-authoritative jargon of critical studies departments and applied that to their professional jealousies, the prosecution of their professional jealousies. Using the language and the moral blackmail, frankly, that yeah. this movement provides you with, the the ammunition this movement provides you with to hijack and capture institutions. And we've seen quite frankly, anything that's big enough becomes a big enough target, it does end up folding to
0: this there's movement a, there, to one degree. There's or another. a great Chappelle joke about that in one of his, I think his last special, The Closer, where he says, I had to look it up because I know. I know the uh, LGBTQI community likes to make up words in order to win arguments. <laughs> this is joke. I thought that was a very funny. We haven't really gotten much into the
1: strains of Puritanism that yeah. you know inform this, but that go you can go back to the to the Moral Science, Our, uh, authored by former Yale University President Noah Porter in the 19th century, which festoons subjective arguments about moral, morality with the language of science not in order to educate and inform, but to win the argument, to sh- to encounter mm-hmm. to the idea that there is an alternative view. This is science.
0: It is not arguable. Yes. I mean, the, the, there are a lot of philosophers who've been trying to kind of show that there was a sort of scientific or universal basis of morality for some time, but you, you're right about that. Well, this brings us to the, like the last thing I really want to get into because the you know, if you're if you're thinking if you're like us, which we're 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 I wouldn't say we're necessarily libertine, but we're certainly libertarian-leaning and we're very concerned about this trend. The last chapter of your book on reformation is very hopeful in that you explain the origin of the phrase banned in Boston, mm-hmm. which I'm embarrassed to say I did not actually know the full story of that. And you sort of say, Listen, it's inevitable. This is sort of the cycles of American cultural history, which is that. We have moments of moral panic. The moral panic recedes, and then we we ridicule the the the, the moral panickers. and talk a little bit about that cycle and why. And do you think that that's coming for the new scolds? Yeah, you just actually
1: reminded me of another theme that I wanted to touch on, which is you know the word the word which means yeah. you know to to strip imp- impure and impious thoughts. From from literature, right? Right now, we use this term as sort of an epithet. It means you know you've you've censored and and adulterated this product in ways that are not commendable. Yeah, but as in, you in point his... out, it's
0: something that people are doing with these archive. You know, <laughs> going Absolutely. back through the archives and changing things that they said before, and or going back and 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 censoring Shakespeare
1: and today because yeah. there's impure and impious thoughts in there. That's precisely, and I mean exactly, literally what Doctor Bodler did. And you know, stripping you know sexual stuff from the, from the Old Testament and what have you. I mean, this was regarded as a great service in his time in the early 19th century. Today we look at and this as fanaticism and, and since sens- a censorious impulse that is not commendable at all, but it was it was beloved at the time that he was able to make these works cons- consumable for people who otherwise had sensitive constitutions. Yeah, likewise, banned in Boston. so the su- society New England Society for the Suppression of Vice. Which was Anthony Comstock's project. And there were soci- societies all over the country modeled after Comstock's work.
0: And Comstock actually was a- awarded police powers by Congress for the. Right. And it was effectively a, a kind of postal service operation at the time. Right. right. And an right. it was about trying mechanism. to stop, stop bad things, you know, body photos and things going through the mail. That was. Body
1: photos. Big- well, initially they had they constituted in order to combat a profound menace. Walt Whitman's *Leaves of Grass*. Oh yeah, like corrupting impure literature, and this was very successful in its time. Boston, it's the heart of mainline Protestantism, the the uh, origins of the progressive project emerged from there, and it has a, a powerful moral crusade element to this political campaign, and it was very successful at banning books, boilerizing plays getting dime store novels that were popular everywhere else, not in New England. And this was considered, you know, something of an esoteric feature of the Boston scene. And it was powerful warning against impure literature for a time. And then a backlash materialized. And the backlash took the form of young people who wanted access to this, to this material. And they mocked it. They, just, they, you know, were dressed up in costume on campuses and, and promoted the titles of banned books. And eventually, it overtook the rest of the country, and so this warning against impure literature soon became a powerful advertisement for it. Publishers and people wanted actively, to say that their book was banned in Boston. Publishers wanted so they their could book sell it in the rest of the
0: Boston. country,
1: <laughs> right? And it worked. And the modern equivalent today is, I guess, banned on Facebook, banned on Amazon, in which sure. conservative publishers who find themselves running afoul of these twenty-two-year-old censors who don't know anything about anything and have an itchy trigger, trigger finger and get Abby Schreier's book banned. Or get a novel ban because Mike Pence blurbed it, or uh, you know even Josh Hawley, whose rather dry vehicle for his presidential ambitions somehow became a national bestseller only because his publisher abandoned him. These 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 books wouldn't have had their reach and their power that they have became bestsellers because of their their the publisher or the PR campaign behind them would have achieved that on their own. They needed to be banned. Well, don't you think, to- I
0: mean, uh, I, I'm I I don't think that Hawley's publisher should have abandoned him, but. Don't you think that Holly's in a little bit of a different category, Was is that the reason why, you know, he was, there was an attempted at deplatforming of Hawley's book is because he, you know, of his photo of the raised fist before January 6th. That's precisely that, why his
1: publisher dissolved his relationship with yeah, him. Yeah, that's and what ha- saying. I'm saying. I right. am tragically sincere, as I've said on every interview, about the events of January 6th and everybody was complicit in them. Nevertheless, that aside, his book
0: became bestseller. Oh, no, I agree, and you're correct on the effect. My point is, is that with Abigail Schreier, the issue was not something that was sort of extraneous to her book. The issue was that the ideas that she explored in her book were 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 a kind of heresy to a very active activist class. The yes. ideas that Holly is talking about, which is basically, you know, big tech should be broken up, and the U.S., you know, the government should revisit Section 230, things like that. These are not necessarily these are not unacceptable
1: ideas these are also very fine distinctions that i don't think anybody has made to the degree that you are these are no individuals and their ideas transgress against are heretical or maybe even apostasy considering how urgent the project is that they're going against not just trans you know not just transgenderism
0: there's also you know there's also a hostility towards speech frankly uh, no well of course and that and that's very important and that, that but what i'm what i'm trying to get at is that when it comes to something and you get into this, you know, when you talk about some of the transgender issues like Jesse Single, the journalist who we both know and and Abigail Schreier, anybody for, the, for like maybe five or six years who tried to explore detransitioners and tried to look at this issue and many who came from pretty much the left or the liberals side of things, even mentioning that, even putting it out there, even giving it any kind of legitimacy was seen as such a threat and, and you were causing suicides and things like that. Whereas there's a separate argument sometimes that, you know, people can can complain that a guy like Sammy the Bull Gravano shouldn't have shouldn't be allowed to profit from his life story, given that he is such a vile criminal. And I'm not saying that Holly is the, the law? Same. Well, sure. But by the way, Sammy the Bull Gravano is profiting from his life story as a podcast right now. If you know this. But the point is, is, that there's a separate kind of thing with Holly. Holly was being punished because of his participation and support for the for the for Trump's fictions about the election, as opposed to you know, kind of being somebody who wrote a book about ideas that are not to be discussed.
1: At the risk of a foolish consistency, yeah. there are plenty of stories of individuals who are punished for their associations. Fair enough. For the yeah. the right parentage that. of a willful daughter for an association yeah, yeah. with a woman of low repute. Um, yes. there are plenty of societal mechanisms that can deprive you of that which you have by virtue only of your poor choices of association and perhaps in Holly's case, a performative uh, participation in an, an abject horror, but one that has taken on yeah. a, a moral dimension on the left. When it comes to the transgenderism thing, there is a, a, a direct thread linking that conduct, which is the constant reinforcement of the idea that transitioning is the fruition of a destiny conferred at birth. The failure right. to reinforce that dovetails very Similarly, I think I'm probably inescapably with a Puritan hostility towards theater, which was rooted in an idea that gender roles must be reinforced constantly with cultural stimuli. Otherwise, we might, cons- we might discover that sexual identity and gender identity might be a terribly mercur- mercurial thing. It might be just part of the social contract. And that, if right. that's the case. Yeah. And we have to constantly reinforce it everywhere and at all times, lest we discover how truly corrupting the seductive mimicry that we see on stage might actually corrupt you and influence others.
0: Right. So, yeah, I think there's a, a very similar... The old Puritans would have hated temptation. David Bowie and Prince and T-Rex. Sure. The new Puritans celebrate them.
1: They do. These are two... I mean, so if you, if you see this, oh, you know, it's this kind of profound performance. It's just, this is, this is way big, big performance. The blurring of gender roles... Yeah. To a degree that would, that would horrify the standard Puritan. The intellectual themes informing this movement, the tendencies and traits and habits that are informing this constant reinforcement of a particular social good on individuals and their particular identities, mirrors almost exactly the process through which Puritans went in order to justify the banning of just about every practice that was similar to theater. Theater itself, but also dressing up in costumes, to go see a sports a, you know, a display of athletics, half a dozen other prescriptions, all of which are designed to reinforce society's preferred conception of gender identity and gender roles. So
0: in the last couple of minutes here, tell us, give us a cause for optimism. Well, cause for, or are you not optimistic? I mean, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but I read the last chapter of the book and I was like, oh, well, it seems like Noah thinks we're gonna get out of this thing. Well, yeah, I do, but there's work to be
1: done for sure. <laughs> to do the work. But like I said, you know, there's, there's a backlash forming and it is apparent, not just in the people I spoke with who very, very much resent the conditions that are being imposed on them that are stealing the joy from their lives. But also, like I said, a, an interesting commercial backlash and the, the disaggregated right. force of commerce is what broke apart among other conditions, but what broke apart Puritan society generally, the disaggregating force of commerce is much more powerful than the moral ba- blackmail and on occasion moral suasion that is applied to the institutions that are doing the work of the new Puritan, the, doing the work of the new Puritan homogenizing society. I think you're going to say and the work before us is to reconceptualize politics as politics, properly understood, relegate it to the venues that politics is native to, law, government, education, even the workplace. But it should not be in your burrito. It should not be mm. in your theatrical performance or the hoop skirt that you wear or the sports that you watch or your family life. All that should be a priori, separate from the political arena. We've imposed political themes on it. It'll take a reconceptualization of what politics is to you know, brush that misapprehension away and get back to a healthier place. But I do see the the signs that people do recognize this is not a productive use of our time and energy. In fact, it's immiserating. And misery is something that can only be endured or rather maintained with a coercive mechanism. That coercive mechanism is still very powerful and remains relatively unchallenged, but not entirely unchallenged. And we're beginning to see the, the beginnings of a backlash that I think could, maybe not would, but could have the power to convince people who would otherwise be disinclined to engage in this kind of misery to just not do it. Mm. It's the easier course in life. The paradigm I'm offering is a far more rewarding one than the one that you are being forced to maintain yourself because the one I offer is at least rewarding. Okay,
0: so final question here, Noah. What becomes of the, you know, I don't know, the online activist, the DEI consultant, the people who have been kind of part of this movement, but also this industry, is there a way... For them to sort of be maybe like I don't know, almost deprogrammed. Is there a way to kind of bring them into the fold so that we can get back to a kind of live and let live, and let's not let let's 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 save our outrage for what truly matters. Well, that that
1: entire industry will you know it came about not overnight, but it's not, but it sort of it it found its critical mass in, in I guess the late '90s, early 2000s, and I can't be the only one who remembers. Satirizing this mentality in the early 2000s, you remember, like the old Penn and Teller show, bullshit.
0: Yes, uh, they I had an I episode
1: with Great. one of these one of these diversity consultant types, who was trafficking in naked racial stereotypes, really offensive racial right. stereotypes, that now find their way into the mouths of government officials. You know, the, the idea that you know, this is Robbie Suave. Reason picked this up that there was an Oregon Health Department thing suggesting that the urgency the value of urgency alacrity is a white supremacist value this is exactly and i mean literally what this guy was talking about in the early 2000s saying you know that just african americans just have a different more laid-back conception of time man yeah or the Abonics movement of the late 90s movement it's all condescension there's an element of condescension here and it it enlivens a particular activist class but once you are aware that you're being condescended to, it's kind of difficult to endure it without resenting it. And that resentment can be quiet. That resentment but do you, does I mean, not have the, to, the, have, to have a John
0: let me, let me put a point, finer point. John McCorder in his book, which I think is a complimentary to this book, and you guys don't entirely agree on a lot of things, but John mccorder says, listen, I am never going to reach what he calls the elect, the people who are fully into it. Sure. They are like, religious fanatics and he says them with this he, his whole book is sort of making the case that this sort of new anti-racist community is similar to a church hierarchy. And is there an opportunity though maybe not to get the most of but a lot of people who have invested a lot of time in thinking and in, you know members of my family my sister was very moved by the black lives matter movement and you know we I mean we we still love each other we still talk but we disagree on this is there a way to bring in People who kind of really saw themselves as part of making history, giving their lives a kind of meaning. There is something comforting being part of a movement like this, even though it is joyless and no and no fun. But you know what I'm saying? Like there's oh, something. There's, there's a sense s- of meaning when you're participating Absolutely. in it. And is there Absolutely. a way to kind of bring them back? Yeah, for, well, for people
1: who find a, a sense Besides of telling them to read your book. In this misery well yeah. I don't I uh, professor McWhorter and I agree in so far as well I'm yeah. not speaking to the to the fully converted yeah I'm providing a permission structure to use no for word. those who are disinclined to support this movement wholly and in total to laugh at them because they have make a, made spectacles of themselves and are behaving in objectively foolish ways I'm attempting to give you an opportunity and 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 a, and a permission to live your life with carefree joy and to set an example that is far more enticing and tempting than the abject misery that you're supposed to marinate in for the betterment of society in a kind of a nebulous and ill-defined way that this is somehow perceived to be a social good it is not a social good it just makes you feel better about yourself because you're more in to the miseries of the world you're a sober serious person it looks to us like fanaticism but to them It looks like a commitment, a a profound, zealous commitment to a socially valuable cause. And being Um, on the right side of history. Being on the right side of history. I mean, that might sustain you for a time, but it makes a misery of you. It immiserates the people around you. And ultimately, it makes you a burden on your community to have to deal with you on a regular basis. The paradigm I offer is a much more fulfilling one, in my view, because it preserves your relationships it preserves your your happiness your capacity to navigate life without without tr- getting lost in trivia and minutia and i think it has more to say for it than one that a superficially authoritative and a superficially righteous perspective on life that in practice makes you less capable of navigating your environment i think that ultimately mm. is the more i think that ultimately is the more compelling point of view and it just it's a collective action problem it just takes One person, it's not us, it's the people on their side, but the people, it just takes one of them to jump. And the amount of back, the amount of resentment that is building and will form the spine of this backlash when it materializes, I think will astound the people who believe this to be an unquestioned moral campaign that has wholly and fully overtaken the progressive left. I don't think they know what's coming for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess what I was looking for, what I wanted, what I'm interested in is, is there a way to sort of speak to some of the people who've been caught up in it and consider themselves part of the movement saying, listen, you don't have to give up a lot of the things that you think are noble, such as wanting to see more police reform, which I, you know. Oh, yeah. we'll just take that said, example uh, br- right. briefly,
1: and, and okay, sorry, Eli, I'm up again. Yeah, the I know you got to go three soon minutes. Too. Sorry, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take that example right there: this police reform. So in the yeah. in the during the riots in 2020, there was a a movement not only to restore a, accountability to local police departments, but to attack the cultural forces that were responsible for police violence, and that manifested in some of the silliest ways possible. Notably, the attack on the quote good cop" archetype in television cinema yes. and reality yeah. television reality programs like cops Ops were canceled and live pd was canceled but these programs had done tangible good right they had helped locate missing persons they had found out large criminals they had solved cold cases the bad they were doing was entirely theoretical the idea that they were contributing to this bad cop uh
0: mentality. now it's also was an opportunity to laugh at poor whites usually and how you know how, there was a meme about this that people, I think, watched in some ways to feel better about themselves because they saw people who were- engaged.
1: Yeah, you have to steep yeah. yourself in a kind of yeah. theory in order to get your right. head around the idea that these intangible bads actually sure. have a tangible effect. That's a very academic approach to yeah. so it was ultimately and what ultimately did take away things that people enjoyed from a much larger host to satisfy a much yeah. narrower minority. The culmination of this project in the silliest form imaginable was the backlash against Paw Patrol, for people who don't that. know it's this, really this good, is yeah. a cartoon show <laughs> about cartoon dogs as first responders. And there was an actual backlash against against this program that it had. It was a counter revolutionary act to to you know have this cartoon right. show on the air. The Times said it was something like it was kind of a joke, but not really. And no, it wasn't because what we were seeing wasn't the principle on display. The principle, Eli, that you say that you espouse the soup, the smart, reasonable position that police should be subordinate to the communities they serve and to elected officials and should be beholden to them and have accountability. That was the principle. It was subsumed into a big booming parade of sanctimony that ultimately undermined the principle they were seeking to advance. Yes. The principle wasn't the point. It was the
0: big booming display of sanctimony. Right. It was a passion play to borrow another concept from the Puritans. Anyway, Noah, thank you so much. What a great book. I'm very happy you wrote it. I urge our listeners to read it. It is on, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on all fine bookstores now. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Eli. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a Nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.